Um, and, and I think the definition that, that is, is my favorite, there's an amazing psychologist called John Amici, who's a huge influencer in terms of workplace culture, leadership and inclusion. And he defines culture as the worst behavior tolerated. I think this is a really powerful definition because I think often organizations will focus on the positive behaviors and values they have in their organization, how that shapes culture. But the reality is if we've got behaviors in the organization that aren't being monitored and are continuing to be tolerated, that's what's really going to shape the organizational culture. Welcome to Inclusion and Marketing, the show that's all about helping you uncover the skills and insights you need to win the attention, adoration, and loyalty of more consumers, especially those with differences that are often ignored by brands. I'm your host, Sonia Thompson, an inclusive brand coach, strategist, and someone with a lot of differences. Let's get to it. Okay, I've got another podcast recommendation for you. It's Latinx in Power, hosted by Thaisa Fernandez. It's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. This podcast features interviews with top-level executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators from Latin America, aiming to demystify the tech industry by providing listeners with insider perspectives and insight from Latin American leaders who have succeeded in their fields. I like listening to this podcast because I like hearing from a broad diversity of voices and hearing from and learning from their experiences. One episode I'm super excited to dive into is the latest one, Lead Generation Journey with Glenville Dixon Jr. Listen to Latinx Empower wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things I firmly believe is that you can't build an inclusive brand without building an inclusive culture. It's really hard to authentically attract and retain customers from underrepresented and underserved communities if you do a poor job of attracting and retaining talent from underrepresented and underserved communities. That's why company culture is one of the five pillars in my framework of building an inclusive brand. As a quick aside, I cover that framework in great detail in my program, Inclusive Brand Academy. Go to inclusivebrandacademy.com for more details. Now, because workplace culture is such an imperative, I'm thrilled to bring you this chat with today's guests, Leanne and Al Elliott, hosts of the Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture podcast and co-founders of a workplace culture consultancy, Oblong HQ. Leanne is a certified business psychologist and leadership coach, and Al is a serial entrepreneur, a great marriage of theory and practice, which also works well because they are a married couple. Our conversation was so, so, so good. Like, I remember listening to Leanne explain something and being so excited I could hardly contain myself. I just wanted to dig in more. I completely nerded out and loved every minute of the chat with these two. I trust you will as well. So without further ado, here's Leanne and Al. All right. Hello, Al and Leanne. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you today? Really good. Thank you for having us. We're excited. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be great. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. I um, am really excited for this discussion. I can talk about culture all day, every day, um, and just the role that it plays in building an inclusive brand. But before I start you know, getting too excited, let's just pause and bring the people in. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name's Al. Uh, I'm a business owner. 
And as you'll hear, if you listen to our podcast, you'll hear that I never say that I'm the expert. I'm definitely not the expert. I'm here to to learn from Leanne, who is the expert. <laughs> He's also here to translate some of the two sciencey things I say into the, the real <laughs> business world. But yeah, my name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist and leadership coach. Um, and together we've co-founded Oblong, which is a people and culture consultancy, and the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast, which is also part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Lovely. I think that we do need more people and culture consultancies, just because if I think back to my days at corporate and just hearing the many stories of people that you interact with who still work in corporate environments, who just have jobs, period, um, and the things that they have to go through, the stories they have of not so good experiences, just kind of reiterate, especially given the time that we spend at work how important it is to focus so much on people and culture and building a good culture that makes people feel like they belong. Absolutely. And, and one thing that we say in our, on our podcast, it's simplifying the science of people. This type of thing can feel overwhelming for for business leaders, business owners that have, have grown their, their company and perhaps don't have that expertise. Um, so that's what we're all here for, is just to help you on your journey to creating an environment in which people can thrive. Absolutely. All right. Well, a lot of people might have um, varying thoughts on this. So before we get too down the rabbit hole, can you just talk about what is your definition of workplace culture? It's a good question. I think there are more than 100 definitions of, of workplace culture. Psychologists <laughs> can never agree and they'll always say it depends. Um, but I think for, for me, you know, if, if we look at kind of the APA definition, then it, it's very much focused around thoughts, behaviors that are shared by members of, of the same organization. Often these are talked about through the lens of language, values, attitudes, customs. My issue comes that there's been a little bit too much focus for me on the latter. So things like ping pong tables in the break room yeah. or quirky job titles like content monkeys instead of copywriters. <laughs> um, so I, I prefer to focus on on the kind of the attitudes, beliefs and behaviors uh, that are shared to create uh, workplace culture. How did we get to the point to where culture became, like you said, those ping pong tables and like, you know, the food that they offer at at the the office and things like that? Yeah. I think often it's a misunderstanding between the intent behind some, some interventions, particularly that large organizations will do, um, and what it actually means. So I think ping pong tables or really cool breakout areas probably came from inspiration of organizations like Google or Apple that have these big complexes. The, the psychology behind it is actually having a, a space that encourages people to take breaks where they can disconnect, oh. they can reflect, they can think, they can innovate. They might do that over a game of ping pong table. But the intent is that people are encouraged to take breaks, not to have a ping pong table in the break room. Uh. And I think also a lot of people, business owners, are looking for that quick solution. And so they can dive into what people and culture means and go, well, I've got enough problems at the moment, so let's throw a ping pong table in and we're doing our bit. And I think that's that's something which hopefully is changing and it feels like it's changing but definitely over the last 10 years, it felt a bit like, a, oh, we'll, we'll do that. And then that's our culture. Right. Yeah. And I think people probably sort of lean into, we want to have a fun culture. We want to have a fun place where people like enjoy coming to work, but enjoyment doesn't necessarily equate to, I get to play games <laughs> or I get to eat whatever I want. Like there are yeah. other bigger sort of issues thinking about like basic psychological safety. Like if, that, if you don't have psychological safety, but you have a ping pong table it's not quite, you know, <laughs> what we're looking for. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the thing that often when we talk about culture, it can feel a bit intangible, mm-hmm. which is why I prefer to th- focus it on things that can be measured, like these beliefs, these attitudes, these behaviors. Um, and, and I think the definition that that is, is my favorite, there's an amazing psychologist called John Amici, who's a huge influencer in terms of workplace culture, leadership and inclusion. And he defines culture as the worst behavior tolerated. Uh-huh. I think this is a really powerful definition because I think often organizations will focus on the positive behaviors and values they have in their organization, how that shapes culture. But the reality is if we've got behaviors in the organization that aren't being monitored and are continuing to be tolerated, that's what's really going to shape the organizational culture. For sure. Oh, that's a really good, that's a really good definition. I feel like I'm going to like have to sit with that one for a little while. (laughs) Um, One other question before we dig in, before um, dig in a little bit deeper on this is workplace culture. I imagine that there's some people who are like, okay, this is something that is established by leadership at the top of the organization. And they, you know, if you're a, a business leader and you've got your own team, you might say, I can't control that. Are there elements or ways that people can sort of create their own team culture whenever they don't necessarily have control over the overall workplace organizational culture? Yeah, absolutely. They're called microcultures. And typically we see them in larger organizations, but not always and not necessarily. We might also see those microcultures between departments, for example. But I think that's a a really, um, I think... Leadership is is responsible for culture and, and how those behaviors translate across the organization. But equally, I think often the, the, the challenge that leaders have is they don't always vocalize what these values look like in day-to-day practice. So something that, that you know, an example that we use, if you're looking at, say, a, a, an accounting firm, for example, one of your organizations might be to, to be bold and think outside the box. You might want your marketing team, your communication team to, to think creatively. As an accountant, you're working within the law. So there's only so much you know you can do. But equally, right. you can be creative within the, the constraints of regulations. I think it's actually leaders taking the time to translate what that value means for each individual role within the business and the types of behaviors they expect to see along with that value. And that's what will shape a cohesive organizational culture. Love it. I think also, like my marketing background, same as yours, Sonia, mm-hmm. I think we can understand it just by thinking about brand. You can say we are the ultra destination for luxurious, you know, but if when they arrive, the bed's rickety, you know, the, the bathroom's not clean, it's not on brand. So I think it's as right. simple as, you know, it's, there's some really, really in-depth stuff as well, but also on a higher level, are we just, you know, coherent? Are we just having, is the brand what we think it is? For sure. Yeah, definitely. Because I think people can have sometimes a disconnect, like you said, between um, what they think their culture is and what people are actually experiencing, um, which kind of leads into the next thing I want to talk to you about is what, from your perspective, makes an inclusive workplace culture? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if we, if we think about inclusion and, and neither Alari or are experts in diversity, equality and inclusion, that's not our our kind of wheelhouse. But inclusion is a big facet of workplace culture and, and leadership and these beliefs, attitudes and behaviors that create these environments in which people can thrive. So if we think about culture as that definition and what makes a workplace culture inclusive, from our research and practice, there seem to be seven pillars of an inclusive workplace culture where people experience both high performance and sense of belonging, but also positive well-being. So those seven, just to run through them quickly, are a reason, role, recognition, relationships, resources, resilience, and remote. So paying attention to these foundations are going to help you build an inclusive culture. 
And it's as much about the practices within the organisation as it is the, the behaviours and beliefs. They, they inform each other. Um, so I guess I can give you an example. For sure. So that would help. Yes. So if we look at, at role, for example. So role is about having clear roles and responsibilities. It's about having autonomy, some freedom in our work practices, and also leaders that understand the challenges that, that we're facing. But if we break that down to its most transactional part, having roles and, and responsibilities, what we're talking about there is recruitment. And recruitment in business psychology is the easiest bit because it's data, it's statistics. That's the bit that we can be confident about, about getting right. But very few organizations will have a very robust and equitable recruitment process in place. So I think organizations with an inclusive culture are going to start their recruitment by actually defining the role that they need within the organization. So I guess for me, that's in terms of what's the scope of this role? What do we, what do we need it to, to do and how does it function? Mm-hmm. And how does it contribute to, to the business in terms of its performance, in terms of its mission delivery? So if we look at that, that's what's called job analysis. So we think about what the role is, and then we think about the types of knowledge, skills, and abilities that are needed for that role. And that can be done through looking individuals in the past that have done that role particularly well, but also really digging into what made them good at it. So you might go, oh, well, John was great in that role, and he was at Harvard. Was it the fact that he had an Ivy League education? Or is it the fact that John was really hungry to, to learn and open yeah. to new ideas? So really breaking down those competencies and translating them into a way that isn't attached to a certain qualification or background is a really good way to create an inclusive recruitment practice. And then once you've got them, you know, that these competencies, you can look at how we measure them. And not all ways of, of measuring competencies are equal. If we look at, for example, think of a client I used to work with who had a role that had a really strong written and verbal communication aspect to it and she said to me I think we need a native English speaker I said do we because one that's actually illegal in the European Union to to say that we have to we have to show it you know that that openness because it's actually about the ability not the fact that they're native but do they have that ability to do the work that's required okay so putting in place a a work sample test for example is going to test somebody's communication and English skills without necessarily saying you have to be a native English speaker. And it's similar when we think about things like psychometrics as well. There's a lot of psychometrics out there that will have bias within them, whether that be mm-hmm. you know, cultural bias or the norms that stands aren't, aren't quite right to assess people um, objectively. And that for me really just comes down to, you know, if, as, as an inclusive organization, are we choosing the tools? that are going to assess people objectively rather than potentially discriminate against them. So for example, some psychometrics like cognitive mental ability tests or IQ tests mm-hmm. can be skewed depending on how the questions are asked, that some people would do better than them than others. Or we might have things like verbal reasoning tests that will use examples taken from American literature or growing up mm-hmm. in an American society. Whereas if you've emigrated to that environment, you might perform worse in that test, but that's not to say you don't have the ability, you just don't understand the context in which that test is administered. And equally with, you know, personality psychometrics as well, there can be some that aren't quite as scientifically robust as others. So it's looking for those publishing organizations who create the test. How transparent are they in terms of the bias within the tool? And how are they validating and using and developing and evolving that tool to make sure it is eliminating bias? So that in itself is a very transactional part yeah. of 
an organization and how it recruits people. But even the decisions that you make in there, in, in that realm, is also going to feed into how inclusive your workplace culture is. Oh my God. Like you said so many wonderful things that I'm like, oh, I want to ask you about this. I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about this. Um, so let me kind of calm myself. <laughs> and then I want to come back to two things in particular. Let's start with the second thing that you just mentioned about some of these tests. Because I remember maybe a couple of years ago, I remember listening. There were a lot of podcasts that were talking about how, oh, it might be great. And they were talking about even smaller businesses, smaller teams. And I remember whenever I worked my corporate job, we did these sort of tests where I think there was like the Myers-Briggs, there was DISC. And not saying that there are problems with these tests, but I think more and more, and I don't know if people are still using these or leaning into them to evaluate, is somebody going to be a good fit for our team based upon how they score on these tests. Not to say that anyone is right or wrong, but they're trying to use these as a as a marker of, is this person going to be the fit that we need? Is that more of what you're talking about? Like, hey, maybe we mm. shouldn't be doing those things because they have some biases sort of built into them? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think those, you know, those biases are going to stem from the lack of scientific rigor that a test has behind it. Mm -hmm. So taking Myers-Briggs, for example, I make a joke that every time an organization uses Myers-Briggs, a psychologist loses their wings. Because in terms of, and they're very open about it, Myers-Briggs, right. in terms of the science behind it, there isn't really any. You know, there's no psychologist or scientist was involved in the development of, of Myers-Briggs. So if that tool is used to make really important decisions like recruitment and promotion, how someone performs in, in on that test or that inventory isn't going to actually reflect how they'll perform in the role or predict right. how they'll perform in the role. And that's what psychometrics are meant to be used for, to predict how well someone is going to perform in the role. And again, it's not about the individual. It's about how that individual performs in the role. Yeah. So if you want to use Myers-Briggs, that's fine for, you know, if we need a common vocabulary to explore how we interact as a team and our differences, then that's okay. But if we're talking about making hard decisions, if we're recruiting somebody in or promoting somebody, the, the kind of the validity and reliability and rigor behind that that test is fundamental consideration for any organization. Just a little fun aside on this. Whenever I started uh, my first year out of business school, um, I went and I was part of this management development program and they had everybody in the group do the Myers-Briggs. And I'm an INFP. And I remember like reading up on it, like with the packet of information and there's like 0.3% of CEOs or business leaders are in this type. And I would just remember like, like, I mean, this has been what, almost, it's been 20 years. And I still remember reading that in terms of just how some of these things can label people and say, mm -hmm. this is how you are. And subconsciously, sometimes those things kind of stick with you and can impact the way you show up, your performance. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think we need to make sure that these psychologists keep their wings <laughs> <laughs> by not using them. Okay. One other thing that you talked about that I want to dig into was more so around evaluating role and the specific skill sets needed versus how are we correlating these naturally to, oh, this person went to Harvard, this person um, had an MBA, this person had 10 years experience. Because I feel like definitely we need to do a better job of this from an inclusion standpoint, especially as we're thinking about years of experience. Not because years of experience isn't important. I just think that the way in which we learn and we grow these days is accelerated. And as people 
spend more time laser focused on a particular task. So what somebody can accomplish in two years or six months, what it might take another person 10 years to do. Um, And somebody who might have a 10-year career, let's say in digital marketing, might not know anything about um, the way it works, you know, um, right now (laughs) with some of the tools right now um, that somebody else who's been doing it for six months, like hands-on, has a very clear and solid understanding of it. So yeah, like I always kind of felt like those are things that we need to work on getting better at. I know it makes people feel uncomfortable because having those markers are makes them feel good about the people that they're bringing on. But yeah, it's not necessarily something that it has to be so rigid. And then we probably open ourselves up to getting a lot more different types of talent whenever we do so. Absolutely. You know, Al and I come from very different backgrounds. I am from an academic background and Al is from a business background. And there are, there are, you know, skills and competencies that I can't come close to in terms of how Al thinks about how creative he is, about how, you know, how he approaches problems and, and solutions. It's a completely different way of thinking with equal value, mm-hmm. depending again on the role and the context of, of the job that you're doing in the organization you're, you're doing it in. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's kind of hard as a business owner because there are these sort of, like you say, it's. This is another ping pong table, Myers-Briggs. Oh, well, yeah. that's the way we we're going to categorize people. But as you said, that when you learn you're an IN, I, I don't know what the, what the numbers yeah. are and the letters are, <laughs> yeah. what they mean. But when you say you're one of those people, then, you know, as you say, you worry that then that might give you this sort of confirmation bias. Oh, I can't finish things because I'm this type of person. Yes. You know, I, I crashed my car. Oh, I'm a Sagittarius. So, you know, we do that. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, and if you're not careful, and it could work really the other way. So when saying you're a complete finisher, you go, yes, I am a complete finisher. And then you're going to be amazing at that. But like Leanne says, the, I think we did a very, one of our very first podcast episodes was that I did the Myers-Briggs and then Leanne read out my results. And she was actually reading from my star sign, Gemini, not <laughs> from the Myers-Briggs results. And it sounded exactly the same. Um, right. So, you know, it, you can't categorize people into 16 different personalities. And it's no. lazy if you think that that's the way you're going you're gonna to do things. Yeah. And I think the other consideration with these types of psychometrics is their self-report. You know, I'm fleeing questions about myself. So the results are going to sound like me because that's how I see myself. That's how I answer those questions. Right. Whereas if we ask somebody else, what do you think my strengths are? We're probably like to get very different, different answers and identify, you know, superpowers that we're not even aware of. I think that's a, a consideration as well of how I see myself is not necessarily how other people see me. Right. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron or could it be Don or John or Sean? Yeah, that kind of impossible. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs in a full 360 view of every customer so your go-to-market team can keep a pulse on accounts before trying to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, so inclusion is a really big term and loaded term, right? Um, 
people are starting to think about, okay, I want to build an inclusive culture. There's so many dimensions of diversity and there's so many different types of people. How should people even start to think about it in terms of how to go about doing it? Is it focusing really on those seven parameters that you had listed previously versus these are all the ways in which people can be different? Um, And how do we find ways to like include all these things to make everybody feel like they belong? Is it more so focusing on these are the areas, let's focus on these particular elements of our culture? Is that kind of how people should embrace it? Yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, your, your question, where do I start? I think that's a good starting point is understanding that, you know, that, as you say, those foundations in, in your culture and, and how they're currently either supporting inclusion or, or not. And I think particularly in terms of the seven I mentioned, one that I'd really probably start with in terms of focusing in it is recognition. Okay. And recognition is about providing a, a psychologically safe environment mm-hmm. that's based on fairness, representation, and appreciation. There's three different elements to it. And I think the one that, I guess the one that is probably the easiest to most tangible to assess is, is called organizational justice. That's how a decision's made within your business. And that could be as simple as looking at pay equity between men and women mm-hmm. um, or, you know, across different roles that people pay the same. How are decisions made? Do we have a clear assessment process for performance so we can make objective decisions about who deserves that bonus, who deserves that promotion? And the a second element of that, which I think is also really important, is employee voice. That's providing opportunities for people to express their concerns, their ideas, um, without any fear of negative consequence. And then actually using those insights to then shape uh, the culture and the culture improvements that you want to make. So for me, I think it's a starting point. Recognition is, is really important. And from a scientific point of view, we know that this, this foundation of, of culture translates into positive attitudes mm-hmm. and, and beliefs and behaviors um, and in this case a sense of belonging and um, feeling attached to the organization being psychologically safe but also in terms of you know the the wider impacts for the organization you know that's going to mean that organizations are going to because people are feeling safe they're going to report more errors so mistakes are, are going to reduce they're going to be more creative and innovative because they feel able to to speak up and and put their opinions forward. So it's not even a case of, of, you know, having an inclusive culture through recognition is just going to be really great because that's the ethical and responsible business thing to do. Mm-hmm. It actually also translates to better outcomes as an individual and also in terms of your business. Yeah. And I think also you said, what's the starting point? And as a straight, white, privileged male... <laughs> You know, I can't, for, I can't for a second sit down and go, right, so I'm going to write my DNI, you know, policy. I can't do that. So we need to start asking for external help. And just by, just by asking the question, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's to your staff or to an expert like you or someone like Leanne, I think that's a great starting point of not just going, oh, well, let's just look at what Google do and I'll <laughs> sort of control C, control V. And it's right. like, you know, that's not, that's not the way to do it really, to make it authentic. For sure. And I think it's acknowledging um, also, so going back to what you were saying about psychological safety and giving people that opportunity to speak up, recognizing that different people speak up in different ways. I was having this conversation with um, a client recently that I, I coach them on a regular basis on, you know, just aspects of building an inclusive brand. And I was talking about feedback and when people feel comfortable speaking up, some people naturally will just offer you their feedback. I hated this. This made me feel comfortable. Whatever it is that they have to say, they're going to say it. 
other people have these same thoughts and opinions, they will only give it if you ask them. So it's kind of like you have to go and solicit it. Other people, you know, if you're in that soliciting can be informal. Um, hey, what do you think? During a meeting, hey, Al, you know, could you provide your perspective? And then other times it might be, you know, letting people know that they can think about it and sit with it because sometimes people aren't going to be able to have that point of view and they need to like process it and like give it back to you in an email <laughs> or a Slack message or something like that. Um, and they'll never be able to give it to you face to face. And I think it's probably just acknowledging that there are a number of ways that people process their thoughts um, and the way that makes them feel safe enough to provide their point of view. And then just making sure that we don't get so caught up that it has to be in sort of one sort of traditional format to deliver that. You know what's interesting is that I'm kind of naturally tend towards extrovert. Leanne kind of naturally tends towards introvert. And because we've been together 15 years, we're sort of meeting a little bit more in the middle. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed that I say things out loud when I'm still thinking about them. Mm -hmm. And Leanne will only say things when she's thought about them. And that was something Leanne pointed out to me maybe about five, six, seven years ago. And I was like, oh, now I understand why Leanne, I ask her a question, she just says, doesn't say anything. So it kind of <laughs> speaks to what you said there, that there are differences in the way that you kind of communicate, think, et cetera. And we need to be a little bit more aware of those, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. I think that does give people a more sense of safety and like they're not the odd person out if they don't process mm -hmm. it out loud the way everybody else does. Yeah. And I think you're right. Having different, you know, feedback channels is really important, whether it be, you know, if you have a particular problem or challenge, you want to consult your employees, giving them, you know, a brief ahead of time, putting people in teams that wouldn't normally work together, you know, to see how that dynamic works in terms of ideation and creativity, having anonymous surveys that go out every quarter to, to gather feedback. There's so many different ways of, of doing it. And equally, you know, from a, Again, bringing the, the science back into it, the more different ways we collect feedback, the richer that feedback is going to be, and probably the more insights we're going to have that are useful to actually make effective change within our business. It might take a little yeah. bit longer and not quite as instant. I know we can be impatient, but in terms of the quality, we're going to get much more quality. We have different channels of feedback that are going to suit different people. Yeah. Do you have to announce to people, hey, we're working on our culture? <laughs> We're trying to change things because I imagine that there are cultures that exist that could be improved upon, but how should people go about changing a culture that is already one way and established, whether it's the culture they want or not, to know that they're going to be sort of evolving to one that is a bit more inclusive or focuses more so in, in centering the people? <laughs> mm. I think, you know, going back to the, the earlier point you made in, in terms of you know, leaders thinking they have one culture, but that's being kind of translated different ways on, on the front line. I think it's the first thing is really to understand that you probably don't as a leader have a very accurate idea of what your culture is. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to bring your employees into that conversation. And equally, you can't possibly understand where you want to, to go in terms of the future of your culture and how you want to evolve that culture if you don't start by currently understanding where you are right now. Got it. So I think there is going to have to be that collaboration with your employees to really understand the nature of, of your culture. But the upside of that as well is if, we're gonna, if you know, employees are involved in that, in that process from the beginning and, and also in terms of once you have those initial results and thinking about the solutions we want to put in place to make these cultural changes, because they've already been part of the process, 
that change itself is going to be much more easy for them to, to get on board with. I uh, totally agree. When I worked in corporate, they, um, the company that I worked for, they did a, a survey every two years. Um, basically, it was sort of evaluating how well we were performing based upon the stated culture that they wanted to have. And sometimes it felt like, oh gosh, the survey again. But then other times it was, okay, well, they're at least asking, and this is our opportunity to provide feedback and let our voice be heard. Do people need to have something as formal as like a, a survey or is it, could it be as informal as just having some conversations? I think it requires both. Okay. The thing about, about organizational culture, unless we make any significant changes or a change happens to us like a merger or an acquisition, culture is fairly stable. So measuring culture every month via a survey, we don't need to do that. I'd say every 12 months is probably a good a good time scale, particularly because of all the changes and disruption we've just seen in the world of work over the last few years. Right. Um, and I think you do need to have that that structured survey in place to get you the data and insights that that you need. Equally, and particularly in terms of, of the change and, and understanding how that change is working, having those more regular conversations with your people are going to be much more important in the, in the day-to-day aspect of it. And also brings that more more personal approach back into it. It's not just about data and numbers and making sure that, hey, we've got an engagement score in you know 75% this year. That's great. We don't need to do anything. No, it needs to be part of a bigger process. But equally, if you've got that those data points that you can see it, you can measure it, you can track the improvements because mm-hmm. we should also be able to predict. So if we know we're making lots of effort to improve psychological safety in the workplace, we should see an up- an uptick in people's experiences of um recognition within the workplace if we're not seeing that uptick 12 months on after we've tried to make these changes then our intervention hasn't worked got it so it's as much as measuring the return investment as it is gaining you know up-to-date insights into how your employees are thinking feeling behaving and as we know from our definition thinking feeling behaving is ultimately what defines your workplace culture and it also depends on your motivation for doing it doesn't it because some people want to do a survey because they want to hear good things not they want to actually hear what's going on and there's quite yeah. a few apps out there, engagement apps out there, who, who seem to use their marketing to say that buy us and you'll hear good things. Use our survey, oh, you'll hear good things, yeah. as opposed yeah. to necessarily what's the, what's the truth. And that's difficult because there are a lot of people out there who, who, who are like, NPS is my thing and that's what I'm just working every single day to get that up. Whereas actually, you know, there could be some people who, don't, who don't, aren't involved in that, who hate your product or your brand, right. but just keep quiet and just walk away to your competitors. So... It's that motivation behind it. You have to be a bit careful of, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And you will hear things that you don't want to hear. And and equally, if you have no intention of doing anything with that feedback, if you're not going to act on it and make those changes, don't bother. Don't bother gathering it in the first place because you're going to cause more damage. Absolutely. Oh, this has been, (laughs) the time has flown by. The time has flown by. There's so much more to talk about. I guess it means we got to have you back so we can um, continue the conversation. (laughs) Any parting words of wisdom for business leaders who want to build an inclusive workplace culture? I think that the thing, there's three main things for me. As I said before, engage experts because you're going to need this, this expertise if you don't already have it in your business. And there can be a tendency to rely on people within the business because we see them as having the, the capability or even the demographic profile of what it takes to, to carry this agenda. And that's, that's not fair. So get the, the experts in that you need. Measure it. This is data. These are things that we can measure. We can predict outcomes with it. Uh, we can measure the return on our investment, both in terms of how our employees are thriving, in terms of their well-being and performance, but also in terms of our business, in terms of our revenue and profitability. They're all related. 
And I think finally a bit of patience. You know, change isn't easy for us. It puts us in this threat state. We don't like it. We resist against it. And the psychological transition we need to go through to adopt that change is a much slower process. So I think patience is, is also a vital thing for leaders. Absolutely. I think you just got to also think about what it, what it is you're trying to do. If you're just trying to do it for, to, to prove that you're thinking about it, it's going to shine through that it's an empty gesture. If you're going for like, you're going for an exit or someone's looking to acquire you and you go, oh, God, I'm going to, I'm going to have to go and do some DNI stuff now. You know, the motivation is there isn't, it's, it's not going to be authentic. Um, and so I think as Leanne says, you got to do it for the right reasons and you got to do it the right way. Absolutely. Where can people find you if they want to learn more and even like get your support in doing some of these efforts? I think the first place is obviously our podcast, Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture, uh, available like yours is on all of the apps, I think. Uh, There is a website, oblonghq.com. Don't know why we call it oblong. We just like the sound of the word. So oblonghq.com. And that's got all the the sort of commercial side of it. So you can find a bit more about the consultancy with Leanne and I there. And connect on LinkedIn. You'll find Leanne and I there. Get in touch, drop us us a message. We'd love to hear from, from your listeners. Absolutely. Well, I'll have all that information in the show notes so people can find you easily. Definitely listen to the podcast. It's super insightful and helpful. And you all cover a lot of um, great stuff. And I love um, the examples are more global um, because you all are based outside of the U.S. You're based, well, you're you're British, but you're in Croatia. So mm-hmm. I always like getting the perspective of, you know, what kind of what's happening in other parts of the world, because sometimes I think we can get very focused on like where we are. And so it's nice to see that some of these problems are universal. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Awesome. Thank you again for stopping by. And uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you, Sonia. Leanne and Al had so many wonderful things to share. And there's one thing in particular I'd love you to focus on so you can take action on what you learned. And that's on getting the data about where you stand currently on having an inclusive culture. As Leanne mentioned, perception and reality can be two different things. So it's important that you get an accurate read on your culture based upon what your team thinks rather than what you feel. Brainstorm some ways to capture feedback from your team and understand what their experiences are like so you can get a baseline of where you stand and start working on a plan for where you need to go. Oh, and one more thing, Leanne and Al were so gracious as to provide a really fantastic resource for you all about that RX7 framework for building an inclusive brand. So I'm gonna add it into the show notes so you can access it very quickly. It's really thorough and it's really great and it'll really help you get started. So go grab it. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you share it with a friend, colleague, or within your network. Another way to share how you feel about the show is to leave a rating and review for it in your podcast player of choice. All of those actions go a long way toward helping more people discover the show and get on board with building a more inclusive world. And if you'd like to get even more immersed in these topics, head on over to inclusionandmarketing.com and get signed up to receive the Inclusion and Marketing newsletter. Each week I send stories, insights, examples, and events happening in the world of inclusion and marketing to help you stay in the know and keep it top of mind. Until next time, remember, Everyone deserves to have a place where they belong. Let's use our individual and collective power to ensure more people feel like they do. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon.